The public debate about patents is old and never stops. Here's Jeremy Bentham, whose spirit imbues this university still. So long as men are governed by unexamined prejudices and led away by sounds, it is natural for them to regard patents as unfavorable to the increase of wealth. So soon as they obtain clear ideas to annex to these sounds, it is impossible for them to do otherwise and recognize them to be favorable to that increase. And that in so essential a degree that the security given to property cannot be said to be complete without it. Bentham may not have been entirely disinterested. For his younger brother, Sam, with whom he was very close, was an inventor and a patentee of an important patent of 1793. It covered all sorts of mechanical wood, wood, woodworking devices, a rotary planer, different types of saw, a lathe, and other things. Mark Isambard Brunel, a Frenchman who had escaped the revolution to go to America and had come to England, Sam and he set up with a man called Henry Maudley the Portsmouth Block Mills. Blocks were pulley blocks for naval vessels. Sam had realized that industrial manufacture of these industrial articles was much better than the manufacture by hand. A ship of the line needed 1,500 blocks, and they wore out. And they were the first mechanized factory for making mechanical devices. Bentham's patent ensured no rivalry, and I suppose might say that Sam Bentham helped win the Battle of Trafalgar. It was only in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, in the late half of the 18th century, the patent system really came into play. Before that, patents for inventions were rare. For the very concept of inventing blossomed in the 18th century. The idea of patents, of monopolies for innovative practical ideas, goes well back in time. One can find individual patents Way back, the earliest anybody's able to find is 600 BC in Sicily for some kind of newfangled loaf of bread. In 1421, Filippo Brunischelli was granted a patent for a kind of barge for bringing white marble from Carrera along the Arno to Florence to build the great Duomo. Sadly, it sank. And because in those days the patent didn't, didn't disclose the invention, we don't actually know what it was. We do know that the Florentines called it Il Badalone, the monster. Perhaps it was some sort of barge with wheels to help it over the shallows. In passing, it's fun to note that Abraham Lincoln's patent was aimed at the same problem, getting vessels over shallows. In Venice, the world's first patent law was passed in, 17, in 1474, specifically aimed at promoting Venetian industry. The first known English patent was granted to a Dutchman, John Wuthman, in 1449. 
he was granted a monopoly plus all sorts of tax advantages in return for which he had to make the stained glass windows of Eton College and the now defunct Cambridge College and he also had to train apprentices in the new techniques. It is still a cardinal part of patent law that the inventor must tell the world how his invention works. If people couldn't have patents, there would be much greater incentive to keep good ideas secret. I go back to the beginning of the Industrial Age. Patents played a huge and essential part. The most important of all was, of course, James Watt's idea of a separate condenser. And the story of that patent and his invention is worth telling. We're all told that James Watt invented the steam engine. Well, that's not true. He didn't invent any engine powered by steam. What he invented was something more particular. He devised an improvement to the existing Newcomen engine. That worked with a big cylinder, which was filled with steam, with a piston. You then put water into the cylinder, and the piston came down because of the vacuum. You then filled it up again with steam. There's big weight pulling the beam back up again. Watt realized that was very wasteful. His idea, his big idea, was to condense the steam in a separate condenser. Thereby, in his words, not wasting a particle of steam. He found a brilliant entrepreneur in Bolton, or rather the brilliant entrepreneur Bolton found him, and they exploited the patent brilliantly after it had been made to work. Not primarily by sales of machines, though they made bits such as valves. What they did was to demand royalties on the savings that were being made compared with using a Newcomen engine. And the users didn't like it much. They started resenting paying these royalties. It was an early example of resentment to important patents. The complaint is always that the patent keeps the price high. So it does. That's the point. But remember, the patent would not exist but for the invention, a new and non-obvious practical idea. It is all too easy to take an invention for granted once it had been made. Think of the burglars of Hamlin Town. Before, when the Pied Paper came to see them, he said, will you give me a thousand guilders? One. 50,000 with the exclamation of the astonished mayor and corporation. And after. But for the guilds of which we spoke, of them, as you very well know, it was a joke. Besides, our losses have made us 50. A thousand guilders? Can't take 50. I don't have to tell you much more about, I can have much more time to tell you about Bolton and Watt. It was an amazing commercial and inventive story. Bolton, with his vision of selling to all the world, in his words, bought his way into the patent from the original investor, Roebuck, who had become insolvent, partly because of the cost of research into turning the what idea into reality. 
or how Bolton ingeniously got an act of parliament to regrant the patent because so much time had been lost while Watt was trying to work out how to make his invention work. What is clear is that but for that patent and the money they eventually made, the key follow-on developments, what we now call the results of R&D, would not have happened or wouldn't have happened as soon as they did. Bolton brought in other inventors and invested in work to improve things. He created the R&D department at the Soho Works in Birmingham. Murdoch, another key inventor of that department, had many in other inventions, as did Watt. Murdoch invented the sun and planet gear. Watt invented the, the, the flyball governor, that if the ball spins out and as it goes out faster, it slows the engine down, keeping it steady. Some say the patent was too powerful, that it actually held up the development of the steam engine for the next development, but to do away with Watt's invention altogether. An inventor in the United States called Evans and Trevethick in Cornwall, possibly independently, maybe Trevethick learned of Evans's idea, got the idea of using a much different sort of steam, strong steam, high-pressure steam. They realized the invention became much more efficient, and instead of condensing the steam separately, you didn't condense it at all, you threw it away. That made the machines smaller, the engines smaller. It became possible to put them to drive wheels. And that, in turn, led ultimately to the rocket and the railway. Patents continued to be really important in the 19th century. The continuation of the Industrial Revolution continued with many mechanical inventions. But of course, thing, other things happened, particularly the dye stuffs industry. William Perkin, another Englishman, discovered and patented in 1856 an artificial mauve dye. He coined the name mauve, mauvine, which he'd taken from the French. It stimulated a whole army of inventors, both of dyes and other coal tar derivatives. It paid a key part in the very development of organic chemistry. The Germans, in particular, spotted what was going on, followed up, and the great chemical industries of Germany owed their existence to Perkin and his invention. The very idea that new and useful chemical can be made and found. The patent incentive was the bedrock upon all which that happened. It still is. Well, I'm going to jump over a bit now to my own stories coming to the bar in 1967. I did some work with the pharmaceutical industry. The cost of medicines in manufacture is by and large trivial. The value of the product is huge. Finding those products, proving they are safe and efficacious is immensely costly, current cost estimate between one and one and a half billion dollars. And it's very risky because half the time, more than half the time, nearly all the time, what you turn out to be investigating is no good or too dangerous. Well, I'm going to tell you about a drug called phenothiazine, which I was concerned defending the patent as a baby barrister. A generic medicine company called Birex wanted to import from a non-patent country this medicine, phenothiazine. The patent was owned by Olin Matheson, 
and exclusively licensed to Smith, Klein, and French. Byrock said the invention was obvious and the patent was no good. Phenothiazine differed from a known drug called chlorpromazine only slightly. Both had a three-benzene ring head with a tail, with a bit of substitutions in them. On what was called the two position, chlorpromazine had a chlorine atom. Phenothiazine had a trifluoro CF3 in that position instead. Otherwise, the molecules were identical. Byrex said it was obvious to substitute the CL for the CF3. Arguments raged, for instance, arguments about electron attracting groups and so on and so forth. Detail doesn't matter. The patent was held valid and the money continued to roll into Smith, Klein and French. They had, meanwhile, hired James Black, an inventor from ICI who had invented propanolol there. He had an idea about a drug for stomach ulcer. A very serious problem in those days. My grandmother had one. It had been realized that stomach ulcers were associated with high acidity in the stomach. People took bicarb and stuff. It was also realized that the acid went up caused by histamine. So Black had the idea, if I can find something to block the effect of histamine in the stomach, the stomach acid won't go up. Some said, don't be silly. We know about antihistamines already. They don't do that. It doesn't work. He said, ah, but maybe there's a different kind of antihistamine, a different kind of blocker. Research went on at SKF, paid for by that money from phenothiazine. And he found what became the H2 antagonists. I visited Welling Garden City the day after the first human trial of one of these antagonists. The subject had had a pipe put down his stomach in the hospital around the corner, UCH, and samples of the acid taken. He was given an injection of histamine. You could see on the graph the acid level going up, that's to say the pH going down. The subject was then given the trial drug, the antagonist. And you could see the acid level go down, the pH go up again. Of course, that first human subject was James Black. The actual drug he's testing turned out to have some side effects. But another antagonist met it that came to the market and became the world's best-selling drug for a bit. UCL, Black actually moved to UCL and started the teaching of medicinal, chemi medicinal chemistry here. Sadly, we didn't, perhaps we couldn't, fund him as much as he wanted, and he moved on. I like to think today's UCL would have kept him, and he eventually got a Nobel Prize for his two drugs. They wouldn't have happened but for the patent system. There's another twist in the story, too. Eyeing SKNF's success was Glaxo. They said, well, maybe you can make an H2 antagonist not within the scope of the Smith, Klein, and French patent, and maybe it'd be better or just as good. And they embarked upon a major research program and did find such a drug and did patent it, and it was renitidine, and it became a world seller, too. The patent system had caused another great drug. It was the same incentive a long, long time ago. 
when Murdoch invented that sun and planet gear I told you at the Soho Works. Why? Because he was trying to get round the patent of a man called Wasborough, a rather dodgy patent, which provided a much simpler mechanism for connecting a connecting rod to, uh, <coughs> with a crank to provide, turn reciprocating motion into rotary motion. My last example comes from my career as a barrister. By about 1980, two forms of hepatitis were known, A and B. They've been identified by so-called classical techniques involving the raising of antibodies in rabbits and the like. Kits for testing for hepatitis A and hepatitis B were used on all blood donations to prevent the passing of these diseases. But quite a lot of blood donees were still getting hepatitis. There had to be at least one other agent. It was very serious. Factor VIII, which is made from many blood donations, is given to haemophiliacs, particularly children, nearly always carried hepatitis. The treatment was life-saving at the high price of giving the child hepatitis. It was called non-A, non-B hepatitis, because they didn't know it was one agent or more than one agent. It couldn't be found by the classical techniques. By about 1980, the new genetic engineering techniques came in, and they were being used to find all sorts of things. Aha, people said. We'll find this agent now. But they couldn't. A massive hunt worldwide was on. Many big companies and universities and non-profit research institutes started using the new techniques. By 1988, some began to, had begun to doubt whether there was a virus at all. Maybe they said it's a prion, a rather mysterious thing, a protein which somehow carries genetic type information and can be carried in causing replication. Not much was known about them, but suggestion was, well, if it's not a virus, it must be one of these things. One small Californian venture capital company was convinced that there was at least one virus to be found. Even though a Nobel Prize winner, Harold Varmus, told them to give up. It's too hard. Cowan had a small team headed by an Englishman, a very obstinate man indeed, an American woman, a Taiwanese Chinese, and a Singaporean Chinese. They were the team. They had the other idea. They persisted and persisted. The risk money was paying for them in their laboratory. It was not cheap. They had to have access to chimpanzee data, because only chimpanzees could carry this disease. The Singaporeans spent six months a year working 17 hours a day looking obsessively at radio printouts looking for this little virus. And in 1989, the little blighter was found. They called it hepatitis C, not surprisingly. It turned out to be the main non-A, non-B culprit. There are DNA now, we know. 
Once it was been found, it was possible to get its genetic code and its protein sequence. It was then quite easy to produce a testing kit to find out if hepatitis C was in a blood donation or hepatitis patient. The first kit was on the market within a year or so of detection of the virus, and it made, of course, a huge difference. Blood donors were no longer getting hepatitis, and hemophiliac children getting factor VIII were not getting it either. It turned out to be an even more important disease than it was thought then, and it was thought important then. It said hepatitis C is said to be the cause of 27% of cirrhosis cases and 25% of liver cancer worldwide. Chiron sold its kits at two pound per donation. The price of kits for A and B and HIV was 50p per donation, and the cost of manufacture was much the same for all of them. A person with Bentham's unexamined prejudices, one who is led away by, with sounds, would say, this level of profit is outrageous. But rationalists, those who can annex clear ideas to these sounds, would react differently. Think of A, the life-saving effect of this development, and B, the simple, plain economic effect. Life-saving speaks for itself, but the economic effect is quite striking. Calculations at the time suggested the average cost of treating someone who got hepatitis C from a blood donation was about £10 a donation, spread over all donations. On that basis, Chiron's £2 was very cheap indeed, wasn't it? And you're not counting the costs of society of severely ill people. Chiron's high level of profit, of course, attracted copyists immediately. Those who wanted to sell hepatitis kits as something rather less than £2, but still way above the 50 pence. Chiron responded by, by suing for patent infringement the day their first patent anywhere in the world issued, which was in the United Kingdom. Because the British office was, and probably still is, the fastest patent office in the world. The copyists said, as they often do, oh, but your invention was obvious. Chiron said, not so, look at the real world. Can that which a Nobel Prize would advise was too difficult really have been obvious? What about all those people who failed? Not, uh, not surprisingly, Chiron won. Its work led to much further work on hepatitis C. It's now known it has seven variants and is thought to be more widespread than at the time it was thought. It wouldn't have happened but for the patent system. There are hundreds of similar stories, bigger and little. The prospect of the patent causes innovation. It follows that a patent right is basically a good thing. But can there be too much of a good thing? Should there be limits or controls over patent rights? It's that question which has increasingly come to the fore in recent years. I begin with the utterly deplorable decision of the Court of Justice of the European Union in Bristol and Greenpeace. Stem cells are a kind of cell which can evolve into all more specialist cells in our bodies. Their potential for development of treatments of all sorts of diseases is widely recognised. For example, here at UCL, Professor Coffey is pursuing promising research which may well lead to a cure for macular degeneration, which affects 7 million people in the European Union alone. His work involved the use of a stem cell obtained from a human embryo preserved many years ago. 
It's all perfectly lawful, controlled by rules deemed down by the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. His research is partly funded by a big pharma company, doubtless with a view to a patent one day. The Brussels court has said that the results of this kind of research are unpatentable because it's all derived from a human embryo. Now, the EU directive says inventions should be considered unpatentable where their commercial exploitation would be contrary to ordre public or morality. Ordre public is a funny uh, French concept which nobody knows what it means, really. It means what you like, whatever you like. And morality. And then the particular example is that the use of embryos for industrial or commercial purposes is deemed unpatentable. You don't have to say what Professor Coffey's doing is immoral or that he's using an embryo. But the court went wide. It said, any possibility of patentability where respect for human dignity would be affected made the invention unpatentable. What kind of strange concept of human dignity is it that says research against the scourges of mankind, such as machiogeneration Parkinson's, is an affecting human dignity adversely. There's a real worry that the judges who decided that suffered from Bentham's unexamined prejudices. They also perhaps applied their own private views of morality. One cannot be driven, avoid asking were religious views influencing this result. The directive needs changing, and fast. Next, I want to talk about sometimes called the patenting of genes. First thing to get in your mind is that you can't patent genes in the body. The cry of the unexamined prejudiced man is, oh, you can't patent life. Well, you're not when you're patenting a gene. You're patenting the gene away from the body, isolated, and with all the junk taken out of it. And what can you do with it? You can make new and useful proteins. Of course, you can't have a patent at all unless you use some ingenuity in doing all this. It was an obvious thing to be doing, straightforward. You don't get a patent anyway. So I put aside unexamined prejudices about gene patenting, instead touch upon what I think is a matter of rational concern. The problem with a gene patent is that it can be too powerful. There's no way of inventing round. It can give its owner total control over almost anything to do with it. It may hold up research by others because they will not have a research incentive. They're allowed to do the research, but if they find anything valuable, it will almost certainly fall within the earlier patent. It can also give the owner too mighty a grasp. The well-known current example is the patents owned by a company called Myriad on two breast cancer genes known as BRCA1 and BRCA2. It is said that it overcharges for testing patients with these, for the, for these genes and also tries to charge researchers trying to do research who haven't got the strength to say, just a minute, I'm allowed to do research. I don't know whether that's true or not. It may be true. Assume for the moment it is. Is the solution to do away with gene patterns? That would surely be irrational. A far greater step 
and it's necessary to confront the alleged evil. There are other ways. And before I come to them, I'll touch another area of technology, but there's an analogy. Telephones, mobile telephones. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of patents that cover mobile telephones. To make a mobile phone, you'll have to use a lot of those inventions. And it's not just a matter of engineering, because to make a phone work, you have to comply with standards. You can't talk to a base station unless everybody's got an agreed code and system for doing it. And that means there are certain patents which are essential. The mobile phone rings have agreed, out of necessity, that they will license the, their essential patents on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms, called FRAND. There's much dispute about the detail of this. The point is that the essential patents are so powerful that a system for licensing them has had to come into existence. There's no way around them. You can't invent your way out of trouble. And that, in, in that respect, they have something in common with gene patents. You can't invent around there either. The remedy may lie in devising ways of making the inventions available at a reasonable price. There are mechanisms for doing this. Court may withhold an injunction if the patentee will not license on reasonable terms, for example. Of course, there will be huge rows about what is reasonable. Think of the Pied Piper's price and the two-pound Chiron kit. My last topic is another criticism of the patent system. It said it doesn't direct research resources at problems whose solution will bring little or no profit. A classic example is orphan drugs, cures for diseases that are so rare the market for the drug will never pay. Another example is diseases prominent only in the third world. The people there will never be able to pay the kind of price which would be required. And that criticism, in a sense, is true, but it's not a fair criticism of the patent system. It's a limitation of the patent system. You could adjust the patent system and say, right, for orphan diseases and these kind of third world diseases, we will give longer terms of patent protection. So you can make your money on it. Or you've got to do something different. The Gates Foundation has found a way of doing it, using money made in another area and paying for this. What is pretty clear, however, is that governments, government spent money is unlikely to produce the result. Think, the entire command economy system of the Soviet Union didn't produce a single significant pharmaceutical. It hadn't got a patent system. There I must stop. I hope I've justified Bentham's great insight. History teaches that patents have enriched mankind and continue to do so. In Abraham Lincoln's famous words, written above what was, what was the United States Patent and Trademark Office, patents add the fuel of interest to the fire of genius in the discovery and production of new and useful things. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Robin. Um, it's now open, open uh, to the floor for, for any questions. A microphone will arrive. Right, thank you. <coughs> Sorry, just a comment. You know, you said, ah, this would not happen uh, unless it was patents. Well, uh, surely the Salk vaccine happened. Uh, the cure for diabetes happened. Uh, they were without um, 
without uh, patents. And also, you didn't tell the full story of Glaxo and Zantax. Yes, uh, they uh, did get uh, a nice little drug, which was a nice little learner for them. Uh, when an, a doctor came along and said, ah, the real reason for uh, ulcers is uh, bacteria, they rubbished him for 20 years. And that's all. Well, I'm not saying that it's impossible to make developments. The Salk vaccine happened. Whether it could happen now, I wonder, because he just basically went ahead and did it. Now you'd have to go through all sorts of expensive trials and the like, and, and, and somebody would have to pay for those. And I, I doubt that would happen without the patent monopoly. Now, much more difficult to make a drug now, or a vaccine, than it never was before. But it is, of course, possible. Some developments happen without. But how many have happened with? And, of course, you're quite right as far as uh, stomach ulcers are concerned. Actually, neither of these drugs were dealing with the cause. Why was the stomach acid come? Why was it going all wrong? They certainly helped with the symptoms and saved many lives. Saved the NHS a huge, a huge fortune, although it cost a lot of money. Compared with the cost of treating somebody in hospital, it's pretty nuts. Sorry, like most pharmaceutical companies, uh, they're quite happy treating the uh, symptoms. They'd like to get you on a drug for the rest of your life, rather than uh, giving you something that will cure it. That's where the money is. Well, you know, I don't actually believe that. I don't actually believe that. If they could have found a way of actually curing and giving you an some sort of antibacterial which knocked knock the cause of the thing on the head, they'd have given you that. As they do now. Well, yeah. Sorry, uh, Glaxo rubbish the guy that puts uh, forward uh, the uh, actual reason, bacteria, and they did it for years. Well, I, no doubt they did. But they, may, they may have had good reasons, they may have bad reasons. That's part of, part of life. But it doesn't stop the patent system, make the patent system a bad thing. I'm here to persuade you the patent system is a good thing, and I hope I've done it. Can I move on to a question just at the back there? is not sustained. Are they a good thing? Uh, there's a big difference between patents being involved in process that have been uh, of benefit to society of them being the cause of this, of, of, of this development. And I think I'm, I'm afraid that you have left out uh, contra-examples, like many, many good things have been developed without any, any influence of the patents, like uh, yes, that, uh, the Linux system, for instance. So, well, and there are other schemes, like not-for-profit, uh, like grants, as many other un many universities will work. They do I'm not saying. Listen, like, so, what's the question? So the the question is why why you haven't addressed the counterpart? Why why haven't you talked about the patent trolls that are harassing uh, companies? Just this, uh, just buying blindly patents just to be able to 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 sue our companies. There's a dark side on, on the patent system that you have failed to address. So I wonder, why, why is that? Well, I, I'm not so convinced. There is a dark side. You're quite right. Some companies are buying up patents. Uh, uh, Apple have just bought a bunch. 
a company called Ifcom aboard a bunch. They're part of the, they're part of the commercial world of, of, of the, the mobile phone industry. Are you suggesting the mobile phone industry isn't innovating incredibly fast? Ask yourself why? Because of the patent system. There's a question just here. Do you think there is a place for morality even if it would slow down uh, progress or would stop new inventions in the patent system? Well, I, it depends what you mean by morality. I mean, that, that, I picked the Bristol case where some people say that it's immoral. I think what they've done is immoral. Uh, if we don't create huge incentives to spend vast quantities of money on research, it won't happen. It's a crude, basic rule. Yeah, but and, and does the goal say, oh, always justify the means? No, of course not all ends justify the means. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. What I'm suggesting is the Bristol case is a ridiculous example of supposed morality. It's nothing to do with morality. It's to do with prejudice. Can I take this question over here? Um, yeah, first off, thank you for that. Um, I was just going to go back to the innovation. The incentive to innovate, yeah, is obviously a, a great thing, but what about innovation on top of the original thought? If we go back to James Watt, the yeah. patent system was from six, 1767 till about 1800? Uh, yeah, 1800. It was, it was about three decades. Yes, because um, he got it extended by Parliament. Yeah, by um, Bolton, yeah, you yeah. said? Um, but in 1782, the Hornblower engine came out, which was fastly cheaper and more efficient, and was kept out of the market till about 1800. Um, the innovations of Arthur Bull um, as well were kept out of the market till about 1804. Um, Watt himself was stifled by a patent um, of a crank and flywheel. Um, yes, that's why they invented. By, the, that's why invented round it. Yeah, which was which was patented by James Packard. So I mean, I'm just giving these examples to to kind of bring the point of the original idea. Of course, should be in like incentivized to be there. But what about the stifling of innovation on top of that? I'm talking about even the the new things of um, if the browser came out in the 21st century and someone patented that, then we wouldn't have the the software we do now, which which competes in a, in a very free market. Well, you're quite right. You're raising a, 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 a quite a severe question. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Of, of the same as with the hepatitis C patent. Mm. Um, how much can a patent inhibit later developments? Mm. I touched upon it about with, with, with James Watt and, and the possibility that it, it, it held back the development of strong steam. Mm. It's a price you have to pay, and there are systems for coping with it of which the most obvious is a compulsory license system. And we do have. It doesn't work well. That's because the way they constructed it, it doesn't work at all well. Mm. But in the theory of it, is, it makes a lot of sense. I've got a better invention. I shouldn't be stopped, yeah. is the, the general line. And I think we should develop that. But that's not saying to do away with the patent system. That's to modify it. So what are your thoughts then on the patent system literally controlling other people's property and what they do with it, even if it isn't so much copying the original idea, but innovating on top of it, creating a brand new idea from that idea. Well, improvements, improvement patents and improvement inventions are a huge part of the system. They don't cause much problem, in my experience, mm. of seeing, stopping people research things. Mm. I haven't seen significant quantities of that. They certainly happening. come to market. Um, um, the, uh, certainly, the, the, the hepatitis C patent didn't, in fact, give Chiron 
total control over hepatitis C, far from it. Lots of other people worked on it and did, the, did research and valuable research. Mm. Um, one thing they didn't find, and they still haven't found, is a, is a vaccine, because the trouble is the virus is so unstable. Um, but you're quite right. The, the, the question of what to do about improvement inventions within the scope of an earlier, wider patent is a big problem and has not been well solved by the patent system, and it ought to be well solved. But there's not a, a system we're, for solving. We're pressed for time. Uh, I'll interrupt there. Just take one last question, if it's a quick one, at the back there. Um, thank you for the very interesting lecture you gave. Um, I studied World Trade Organization and the Environment, um, a master's a couple of years ago. And what I don't, I mean, I'm a lawyer by trade, but I don't quite understand this, but apparently the third world countries were complaining that they couldn't get their aid drugs because of uh, huge costs. And so special um, consideration was given to them. And then the governments were stealing those um, the, the medicines and not giving them to the people that they were intended for and taking them and making profit themselves. And apparently there was something called green something, which they'd paint the drugs with green stuff so they could get through. But there are problems when they do try and lower the prices for the third world that the wrong, it'll get into the wrong hands. I just... I know we did a lot of work on that and had a lot of lectures on that, so I wondered if you could comment. And it was a very interesting lecture. Thank you. Can I interrupt? This sounds like an interesting question, and I think in the interest of time, you'll have to get together to talk about it. All right, okay. <laughs> Not in public forum. I do apologize for that, um, but to say thank you very much indeed, Robin Jacob. Thank you.